Well, before we start, just a quick review of chapter 4 of Mark is a unique chapter in the gospel because he goes through several uh, parables of Jesus' teaching. And Jesus taught a lot in parables, and you can see it mostly in the other gospels, not so much in Mark, because uh, Mark is the book really of action. And, uh, but there's sort of a pause here in chapter 4 where the whole chapter... Um, is pretty much committed to some parabolic teaching of Jesus. And just to review for us the, um, some basic principles of interpreting parables. Um, anybody want to give me a review last week with uh, teaching on parables? What's unique about parables or what do you have to remember about parables when we interpret them? Right, I think that's the most important thing to remember. A parable is going to be focused on one main issue. There are other details involved that we can understand and interpret, but there's usually just going to be one main point. Be careful not to chase around all the details. What else are really important with parables? Par- Go ahead. Do not develop your theology around the parable. Right. A parable is a story, and the Greek means... Um, para beside or balos to throw or cast so the idea here is you'll tell a true story everyone can understand and then mirror it with a spiritual truth but you have to be careful that you don't take that story and shape a whole theological system around it okay it is one sort of isolated story very good what else uh it's important to understand the natural meaning of the true part when he talks about farming and a seed and the soil, it's important to understand what that just really meant. Um, context is important. And in context, in, we pointed that out last week, really important here that Jesus is teaching these parables on the heels of a very active ministry where there was a lot of confusion about the different responses to his message. There must have been confusion because we went through all the different uh, responses that people can have to Jesus' word and then he teaches the parable on the seeds and the sower and the soil. Um, let's see. You know, speaking in parables, you can see where some people would think Christ was crazy. Yeah, how so? Uh, well, I mean, here's, what's this guy doing out there talking about seed in, you know, right. in a boat? <laughs> yes, so the people who... Yeah, his family better come get him. Yeah, right, there you go. thought he was crazy. Uh-huh. His mothers and brothers and sisters thought he was crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So on one level, you can understand that. He's talking about stories that may not make sense, especially if you're, um, your eyes are veiled, right, and you can't see the truth. Uh, the last thing I would just point out is you have to pay the most attention when Jesus actually interprets a parable. And when he interprets it, what he says is the way to interpret it. That, that's clearly true. Uh, there's over 50 parables in the New Testament. Jesus used it as a big part of his teaching ministry. Okay. Oh, and Matthew 13 is the most fertile ground for parables. There's, I think, eight different parables or nine parables taught in Matthew chapter 13. So if you ever want to look at a dense area of, of Jesus' teaching, that's where you go. So last week, we had read about the parable of the, well, it's called the parable of the sower, but it's really about the soil and the seeds that are cast. And uh, 
couple main verses in that were chapter 4, verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is pointing out that some people are going to hear the parables and they're just not going to understand it at all. It's going to be like, it's going to be like um, someone's scared to come in. Come on in. We've got lots of seats. Hi. Um, You guys have two seats there? Can you scooch over? We got two up front. So, uh, one point from last week. Uh, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus pointed out in this parable that um, people whose um, heart is darkened, people who would call Jesus a devil, are hardened, they don't have faith, and they are not going to understand the parable at all. Um, And he told the disciples in chapter 4, verse 11, to you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside get everything in parables. So point out that um, one effect of parabolic teaching is Jesus is telling them this is active current judgment on people who don't understand it. This is they see my judgment on them because I'm speaking the truth of God and they don't understand it. So already this is a sign of their judgment. And to those who understand it, this is a blessing because they've been given the keys to the mystery of the kingdom of God. Even though the uh, disciples are chosen and saved and they should understand the parable, at this point it's clear they don't fully understand it because in chapter 4, verse 13 before he explains what the parable of the sowers means, he says, do you not understand this parable? And how do you, will you understand all the parables? So um, even though they're saved, this is before the Holy Spirit fully comes at Pentecost, they still need help interpreting Jesus' uh, teachings. And then the last point I want to make before we get into today's lesson or to remind us is when Jesus said that in verse uh, 13, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? It implies that this one parable that he used with the sower and the seeds and how the different seeds fall on different types of soil, the only soil that bears fruit is, the, the only seed that bears fruit is the seed that falls on the good soil. All the other soil is not good. God The soil is our heart, so it's the prepared heart that God miraculously uses to fertilize this seed so that it can grow, okay? It's only one soil that's good, and that's the soil that God's prepared. Um, So, this parable, understanding that um, God is who causes the growth, is very important for them to understand, particularly the lesson of that parable is very important. Also, the bigger point, which is that only God's people will actually understand what God's saying. So if we don't understand that basic truth, you're not going to be able to understand the gentle teaching of all of his parables. And the main point of that parable is that the word, or the seed, the seed is the word, it's only going to bear fruit when it lands on good soil, which is a good heart. That's the main point of that parable. The seed is only going to grow when it falls on a particular soil. The word is only going to bear fruit when it falls on a particular heart. A powerful point. But don't get discouraged when you see it sown. The seed is always the same, but the right. response is 
all over the place. Right. That is one of the main points. He's trying to tell the disciples, you know, they are, they are the farmers, right? They're casting the seed or putting it in the ground. So he's, one practical application is don't get discouraged, farmer, because you don't have anything to do with the soil. And some of it is going to be snatched up. Some of it is going to spring up quickly. Some of it will be choked out by thorns. But you just keep throwing the seed, and God is the one who causes the growth. Which, you know, that with our uh, evangelism, that should encourage our prayer life to be praying for God mm-hmm. to be preparing that heart. Right. Because we just, I think many times we lose sight of that bad heart, and where we get frustrated, you know, well, why don't you get it, you know, or we give up. But I think behind the scenes, we need to be praying for the Lord to right. till the soil of that heart. <coughs> That's right. Have a, like an accurate, clear understanding of how the spiritual life comes about and our role in it. And prayer is really important. I pray that God would prepare their heart. Able to prepare or to pray as best we can based on the truth of the scripture, right? So that, that's a really helpful <clears throat> prayer. Pray God prepare hearts so that your word will be received. Yep, very good. Okay, I think that's a good summary of last week. Any other thoughts on last week's lesson? Okay, well, this week, what we'll read, you'll see um, the parable of the seed and the sower, and its explanation ends at verse 20. And so I'm going to read from verse 21 through verse 34. And as I read it, you'll see that he sort of changes um, direction a little bit. He goes from the farmer analogy to verse 21, talking about the lamp and the light. And there's a teaching lesson there. And then he moves on to another, two more uh, farmer stories about two different seeds, one seed that's growing in the soil, and then there's a parable of the mustard seed. And we'll talk about, uh, there's lessons in each three of these. And I will say, just as an aside, when I prepare for these lessons, usually what I do, I will read the text throughout the week and take my own notes and try to come up with my ideas of what God is teaching here. And uh, that's a great blessing to me. Then, usually on the weekends, I'll open up the commentaries and look at what they say. And fortunately, often, they're similar Okay, it's like, okay, I, I, great, I understood that. Um, sometimes, though, you open a commentary, and you're like, wow, I totally missed that point. I mean, and, and then I started agreeing with the commentator, like MacArthur especially, he's usually the first one I open up and read. So I would just say as a disclaimer on this one, the, the four main points we'll make here, really it's, it's MacArthur's, if you were to open his commentary and read it, it would be similar to this, not exactly, but... I just, I always, whenever I sort of copy someone's main points, I like to give them credit for it. So the points we'll make today, a lot of it is from John MacArthur, but hopefully you won't hold that against me because, you know, just because. So I'll, we'll just read these, verse 21 through 34, and, and go through it. Uh, so, and he was saying to them, a lamp is, is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? 
For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a phrase he repeats throughout. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care of what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by the day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking to the, the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Okay, so there's really, um, going through this, you, you can see there's four main responsibilities for those who have, we got one C up front, perfect. The, the four main responsibilities for those people who <coughs> have this soil that, can, that is able to sprout the seed, okay? There's four main responsibilities. So this is speaking to the people who receive the word on the good soil. And the first point, responsibility, we see here in the teaching on the light, which is it's our responsibility to let our light shine. It's our responsibility to spread the word. It's our responsibility to witness. Light is a metaphor for truth. It's a metaphor for holiness. It's a metaphor for the great spiritual life that is in us. And you see it throughout the Bible, a few verses, Psalm 119 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? His word is a light to our path. Our job is to spread that light. Matthew 5, 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. Similar imagery here. It's a metaphor for truth. And then John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 of course, in him was life, and the life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. So um, common imagery of the, using light for truth, holiness, and spiritual life. And of course, the lesson here is pretty clear. We have this light. Don't hide it under the bed where no one can see it. We're to put it out on the lampstand so that everybody can see it. The lights they used back then, apparently, they were like a... Um, well, you had to put it on a lampstand because it was a little <coughs> flickering of oil. You know, it was like a wick that they would put in a, it was like a, a vessel. It was like a saucer, a shallow saucer with a handle on it, and it just had some oil in the bottom and a wick in it, and so it just was like, like a candle, really. And so people didn't have lights like we have now, so it was really important for that little candle that, to be put up somewhere where you could be useful. It would be crazy for them to think to put it underneath the couch. So that's what Jesus is trying to explain to them. You have this light, be sure... You don't hide it. Shine it before men. Now, Tim, it's interesting that, you know, if you're in a completely 
even a little light like that is mm -hmm. very bright. You know, we, you know, with all this burning, you don't think of that. But mm -hmm. you see it in complete darkness and light yeah. a candle, and it's like, whoa, I can see. Yeah, and you, you can have the experience if you're ever out like way out in the Midwest or somewhere way, way, way away from any city or any kind of light and the stars come out, it's amazing. Or if the moon comes out, it's just like everything is completely lit up. We were in a, have you been in absolute darkness? Well, in these caves and stuff you can go to, I think it was Ruby Falls, we had absolute, and then there's other caves you can go to and, and they'll take the guides in with you and they'll say, okay, we're trying to the lights. And this is scientifically absolute darkness. Have you ever had that experience? And you put your hand like that, you cannot see it. You can't see anything. It's pitch black. It's scary, actually. It's really scary because you think, well, what if all the flashlights went out? <laughs> so, but then, but then they do that experiment. They'll turn on the tiniest little flicker of a candle, and the whole, whole thing will be lit up. Yeah, so it's a really powerful image. That's what we Christians are in a dark world. I think if Jesus was the brightest light, and he sh shined in the darkness, and the darkness couldn't understand it. So, the, the, I think the, the point there is, is pretty obvious to those who are listening. And then verse 22 gets actually a little bit complicated, but not really. Because then he said, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. So I think what, what this verse is saying here is... Um, you know, it amplifies that verse above it. Don't hide the light. You want to reveal it. Um, and it also helps explain how, if you think about it, based on what he taught in that first parable, saying that, you know, I'm going to speak all these things in parables so that they will, people who um, are not saved will not hear it, but you will hear it. So that's the reason he's speaking in parables is sort of to keep things hidden from the unbelievers, right? But then he's saying here, nothing is hidden except basically eventually to be revealed. And I think what he's alluding to is, for now, while Jesus is on earth, he's teaching in these parables, it's particularly helpful to the believers, it is not helpful to the unbelievers, that's like the hidden truth for now. But eventually, he doesn't tell his apostles or his disciples to go forward and teach in parables, right? You don't see them doing that. They go, they're sent forth even later, actually, if you look at chapter 6, verse... Um, seven, he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits, instructed them they should take nothing and basically cast out demons, anoint the sick and heal them. Oh, yeah, verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. And then there's a lot of other verses where he sends out his apostles. He says he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim the gospel. So, um, so what he's saying here is basically, for a time, this was parabolic, but ultimately, what is now in secret will be revealed to the whole world. Has anything been secret but that it would become light? He's saying it's inevitable that this gospel is going to go forward through the work of his disciples. The clear gospel is going to be proclaimed. And you see it in the gospel accounts, and you also see it through the change that happens at Pentecost and with the Great Commission, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, observe all that I've commanded you. And then in Acts 1 verse 8, of course, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part 
of the earth. So that's what he's saying here. Nothing is hidden. Eventually, it's going to be revealed to everybody. Verse 22. So any questions on that? I think he's just really explaining more to the disciples the uniqueness of this time and then foreshadowing and what they're ultimately going to do is going to be very bright lights to the whole world. Do you have something? Yeah. No. Okay. Any questions about that? Another thought on verse 22 um, is that he could also be pointing out that um, eventually hypocrisy will also be exposed because this verse is also used in another setting in Luke chapter 12. Um, I have it here. I'll just read it for you. Luke 12 verses 1 and 3 says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. That's the same phrase that's used here. So in that case, he's using this same phrase to describe basically these people that are hypocrites and they hide things in secret for a while. Ultimately, that's going to be exposed. That's what he's teaching in Luke. And to continue that verse in Luke chapter 12, verse 3, he says, Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. So I think verse 22 could be two things, mainly teaching about the future, which is the light will shine. It will expand. We will see it. And we, we'll get into that in a minute about the expansion of the gospel. But also it could be in reference to a warning to the people who are hypocritical. Like those people in the previous parable who were like the ones that sprouted in the shallow soil. Remember, they grew up first and they popped up, but eventually they, they fell away. So those type of people could have a veneer of truth, a veneer of something that they're hiding behind it, but eventually that is going to be revealed also. So it's a warning to people who may be hypocritical in their life and their walk. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear, verse 23. This is repeated, I think, four times in this section, in this chapter, basically reinforcing to them, listen, listen. If you have ears, listen to what I'm saying. This is, this is very important. Okay, so the first responsibility was spread the word, let your light shine. And the second responsibility, which is described in verses 24 through 25, is uh, be diligent. Be diligent and expect you'll get a reward. He was saying to them, take care of what you listen to. So he's saying, take heed, hear this, you know. Listen, gain some insight into what I'm saying. Take this seriously, what I'm saying. And he says, by your standard, it will be measured to you. What it, it doesn't translate perfectly well in the English, but essentially what he's saying is, um, be sure you pay attention to what you hear, and the more you pay attention to this, the more you do it, the more you understand it, and then you'll understand even more besides that. So by the amount of work, by the standard of measure, the amount of work you do listening to what I'm saying, you will benefit from it, and you'll, you'll get a measure in return. It's like you'll reap what you sow. You, know, you take this in, listen, study, understand the spiritual truth of what I'm saying, and the more you study this, then the more you will benefit from it. And then he adds, and even more besides, that's the graciousness of God. He'll even give you more 
than what you put into it, right? He'll, he'll bless you even beyond the work you put into understanding as best you can what I'm saying. The New Living Translation, which, you know, it's a paraphrase really, but sometimes what it says is actually good, is a supplement to what we read in the more literal uh, verses. But the New Living Translation says, and be sure to pay attention to what you hear. The more you do this, the more you'll understand, and even more besides. So I think it, to me, embodies accurately what, what is being said here. Verse 25, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. The parallel account in Luke 8, 18 says it a little bit differently, but it seems to me more clear. Even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. So there are those people who uh, think they have spiritual truth, and they don't. They have nothing. So whatever they think they have, the, even that is going to be taken away from them. It's important to remember this teaching is not uh, material teaching. He's not teaching about material things. It's like work hard for a big bank account and a big farm so that you'll be blessed in return. That is not, it can't be what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual truth. And Paul uses the same concepts a lot. There's a lot of verses that Paul uses like um, in 1 Corinthians, you know, we run the race to win. That's our goal. We run hard so that we can win the prize. And what we're winning is not a perishable wreath. It's one that's imperishable and in heaven. Store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. Right? That's in Matthew chapter 6. Paul says in 2 Timothy, remember that, he says, In the future there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord will reward to me on that day. Work heartily for the Lord, not for men. So all these... Uh, these um, statements of Paul resonate with what Jesus is saying here, which is we have a spiritual reward. That's what we work for. And uh, he'll bless us for it. And he'll bless us way beyond what we ever expect or imagine. And really, heaven is way beyond what we can expect or imagine, right? Ultimately, our eternal life in heaven is way, way beyond what we can ever imagine. So work diligently and expect a reward. That's a second responsibility for those who have soil that receives a seed. The third responsibility, and by the way, verses uh, 26 through 29 are unique to Mark. This isn't a parable or a story that's in any of the other gospel accounts. So this parable of the seed is really unique to Mark. And just uh, as a side note, you'll see when you look at verse 26, let me see if I can... You can see that basically verses 10... Let's see... Look at verse 10, chapter 4. As soon as he was alone, his followers with the 12 started asking him about the parables. So really from verse 10 all the way through verse 25 is sort of a private session with his disciples. Okay, Before that, the parable of the seed and the sower was publicly. And the hint you get for that, this is just looking at the Greek and the subtlety of the language. Uh, let's see, verse 9. And he was saying, okay? Verse 11, and he was saying to them. Just so you, just when you read through this, all the, whenever he says, and he was saying to them in this section, it's like he's saying to them his secret little club or his, his disciples.
And then when he gets back to verse 26, and he was saying, not when he was saying to them. Okay, so this is just uh, subtleties in language that tell us that from Mark's account, verses 10 through 25 was his private meeting with the disciples. Now he's sort of back out in public with not only his disciples, but other people who, many of whom will end up maybe not believing. Yeah, I wonder, you know, the flow of that was, you know, did he say, hey, y'all, excuse me for a minute, i got to tell my boys something, and they kind of went over there and huddled up, and, you know, and then he moved back to the large crowd, or? Well, I think the way it happened, and if you look at the parallel account in Matthew, I think basically what happened is that this parenthetic section, 10 through 25, was after, at the end of the day, okay? I think he went through all the teaching, because in Matthew, he goes right from, uh, I'm not going to get this right exactly, but um, hold on a second. This is a parallel uh, uh, rendering of the texts. I, I'm not going to be able to do it, but basically it, it seems to me like what, this parenthetic was actually spoken afterwards, and then Mark just put it in here for the sake of his, his lesson, his teaching to us. But I don't know. I think the natural ebb and flow must have been hard. You'll see as we read forward, I mean, they cannot get alone. It's so hard, and I think it's in verse chapter 6 where it says, okay, it's time, basically, let's go together over here to get a break. We haven't eaten. It says they haven't eaten for a long time. They were tired. Let's go get a break. Let's go over here. And then the next verse the crowd saw where they're going and just got there first. And then Jesus is, uh, had compassion on the sheep. And then it sounds like they spend a whole other day teaching. So, yeah, it is really hard for them to get alone. But it seems like they found some time somewhere in this setting. Well, in verse 10, it says, But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve. Right. <coughs> yes. So... We don't know when that exactly was. According to this, it seems like it's it's after that first um, teaching. I don't think it necessarily has to be. I think it, it could have been inserted, describing a time somewhere later in the day. Or maybe not. Maybe they, they went off to a, and had a break and then came back to teach publicly to the crowd. But I get, the main point I want to make was in verse 26, and he was saying he's back out in public. He's back out with not just the disciples. Uh, and this is only recorded in Mark. Uh, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. So he's back to the farmer imagery and the seeds in the soils. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. Reminds me of the song we sang today. I was listening. I don't know if I get this right, but the one, I stand on every promise of your word. That's the refrain, I stand on every promise of your word. And then I think the first part of that song says, from the start of dawn to the setting of the sun. Is that right? Anyone who knows the music? Yeah. From the start of the dawn to the setting of the sun. I mean, I thought of this, like, oh, here we have the farmer today. He goes to bed at night, he gets up by day. From the setting of the sun to the start of dawn, he's standing on the promise of his word. And his word is this, of course, the seed here. It's a really neat uh, song today that fits our teaching. So he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. So the point there, a couple things. Um, Jesus is talking again about the kingdom of God. 
meaning, I believe, not a worldly kingdom of God at all. He's meaning the spiritual life in me that's coming, the kingdom of God, people who are saved. This is my working in the world, salvation that's coming, the kingdom of God. My work is like a man casts a seed on the soil. And then the idea of the guy going to bed at night, you know, he's sleeping, right? He's just sort of going to bed at night and getting up by day. And the, the Greek here, the tenses they use, I don't know them, but it, commentators tell me, basically implies repeatedly, you know, he, he, he's doing this. He's going to bed, he's getting up. He's going to bed, he's getting up. And as he's doing this, sleeping sort of soundly, getting up, there's something going on in his field that he doesn't understand. He doesn't have anything to do with it. He's just restful. He understands that eventually something is going to sprout up and grow. It's a great image and a great truth that Jesus is teaching. And it says, in Mark even says here, he himself doesn't know. So as he's sleeping, and by the way, even today, we don't really know how a seed goes from something that seems dead. I mean, seeds can sit around for hundreds of years, like in these tombs and stuff, right? And you can find them and put them in soil and water. I think modern science can't even explain how that actually happens. But that's the imagery here that even 2,000 years ago, Jesus is telling us, yeah, he doesn't understand how that works. There is something in that seed that is life. It seems dead, but it's not. It's a miracle that it is able to just go from something dormant and seemingly dead that just starts growing, right? So the good soil, the faithful here, receives a seed. When it says in verse 28, as the farmer sleeping, doesn't know what's going on, he's restful, the soil produces crop by itself. And this is an interesting Greek word. It's actually automatos, automatos. So it would automatically is how you could translate it. The soil produces crops automatically. So of its own accord, like almost of its own will, the soil spits out this crop. Um, and that word automatos is used twice in the New Testament. So the soil produces the crop automatically. And then in Acts chapter 12, verse 10, it's the same word, interestingly, this uh, scene where Peter is jailed and he's released from jail miraculously. When they passed through the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to the, the iron gate which, that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself, that word automatically. So it's the same idea of something just automatically happening. We don't understand how it works, but it's a work of God. Isn't there another perspective along with the automatic of autonomy on its own? Yeah. Because he's making the point here that the soil itself that produces the crop. Right. No, no other influence except the, the seed. Which right. Which obviously we relate that to the work of salvation. Right. That it's, it's the work of the word itself in our life. Mm-hmm. Automatically or Right. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's like it's like this little engine inside it that just don't understand. But it automatically, of its own, it, of its own, there's nothing to else to do it. It automatically sprouts to life. It is a great image, right? If you think of it, and John and I were talking about this on the way here. Of when you're saved, think back on. It actually gives clarity to how we're saved. And, you know, because when I go through my testimony, oftentimes it's like it's different 
as I grow older because my perspective changes on how it happened. But one perspective we could all have is you think of the word as a seed. And it, at some point in your life, it hit. And it started, you don't know how, automatically it somehow started to grow. And so that is just a great image that he's trying to tell us here. And so just think back on your own salvation. If you think you had something to do with it or you didn't, it was a miracle of God, a little tiny seed. And we'll get to how big that seed was in a minute. It wasn't very big, like a mustard seed, but um, a real tiny seed that somehow hit you and automatically on its own. For some reason, God prepared the soil of your heart to be able to receive it, and it started growing. So praise God. It's not us. It's the automatic growth of that seed. So it reminds me of another verse, John 3. Don't be amazed, I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. The same idea, which is we have nothing to do with it. We were dead, and God made us alive. Any questions on that? It, it's, it, uh, oh, oh, and then before I finish this, verse 29, when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So just the basic reading of this to me says, um, you know, there's a time when that seed becomes a crop and bears fruit, and that's when it's harvested, right? And... Uh, you can look at this three ways. To me, the most natural reading of it is this is just the fruitful growth of the believer. Okay, He grows, he's fruit, there's harvest time, and that fruit is harvested, and it actually will end up bearing more fruit. That's one sort of way you could read that understanding of putting a sickle to the harvest. Um, another way you could view it is... Uh, to look to think of this represents the growth of the church, right? And I think this would fit and be consistent with the teaching, but if you think about the church, and what Jesus might be teaching them here is uh, you have a crop. It starts from a small seed, and you just have a few followers right now in a little crop, and at some point you're going to have a huge harvest, and it's going to start from a small band of followers, and it's going to grow into this huge movement as manifested you know, starting at Pentecost and then ultimately throughout the whole history of the world, you have a crop, and God is the one who harvests it and puts a sickle to it, and he knows exactly when he's going to harvest the exact crop that he um, sovereignly has designed. So you can look at it as the fruitful growth of the individual will uh, bear a crop, or you can look at it representing sort of the growth of the church. And there's a third way you could look at it, and this is interesting too because this idea of the sickle and the harvest has apocalyptic um, language too. It's used a lot in some of the apocalyptic um, scripture. Like in Joel chapter 3, you read about a harvest and a sickle of the harvest. I won't go there. I do want to just go quickly though to Revelation. There's a couple verses there that um, could cause us to consider that this may be talking about future second coming of Christ and the ultimate harvesting of a crop. Uh, Revelation 14, verses 14 to 16. 
where he says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. So that's could be referring to that. That's a powerful verse, but um, maybe Jesus is, is giving some foreshadowing of this future harvest. And then just while you're there in Revelation, there's another verse, uh, chapter 11, verse... 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So the idea here being that at a certain time, when God appoints it, there's a harvest, and then the kingdom of the world has become God's kingdom. So three views to look at it. Represents an individual's growth, represents the growth on earth of the church, or it's in reference to um, the apocalyptic future events that, that will happen as described like in Revelation. I think the first one, because I think when it says he immediately puts in a sickle, he's talking about the farmer. I think the farmer is the believer who's, who's spreading the word. And uh, in my view, I think of Second Timothy chapter two, verse six: the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. It's like the person who is spreading the word, working hard, sleeping, resting on the sovereignty of God to raise up fruit. He benefits by seeing that crop come forth. So, but again, uh, it's hard with parables sometimes to get too clever with all the understanding. Shane faithfully taught us when he was going through Luke that. Can get so misdirected mm-hmm. teaching of a parable because there's so many different analogies you could run with. Yeah. But the, the key is that there's one point that yeah. Christ is making. And in this context, you know, coming out of the parable of the soil is the soil itself. Yeah. Because you could say, okay, this man is like the kingdom of God. The right. kingdom goes to sleep and doesn't know how the harvest is reaped. Right. That's possible. Right. You, well, you can't go down that path. That's not the point. Right. The point is the soil. And I agree with you on the, the sickle typically in Revelation is referring to judgment. Mm-hmm. And it says that when it's ripe, which you know, as soon as fruit is ripe, it begins to spoil. Right. And I think the point there is it's too far gone for the people of the earth. It's time to bring judgment. So, yep. I agree with you. Yeah, but thanks. It is true with the parables. Remember, there's a main point, and the main point here, I think, hinges on this, this automatic word, that the seed has life of its own, and as the farmer's sleeping, it springs to life by God's miraculous, sovereign will to cause that to happen. Okay, so that was the third responsibility of those who receive the seed on good soil, is to wait expectantly and trust the Lord. He, he provides. He provides the life. And then the fourth responsibility is similar to it. it. Basically, trust God. He's powerful to cause big things to happen. And, and we have all are familiar with the parable of the mustard seed. I'll read it again, verse 30. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? So again, he's talking about the kingdom of God. This is what it's like. 
is like a mustard seed. When sown on the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds on the soil, yet when it's sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants, and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. I just want to look real quick at that reference there. It's 30, yeah, Ezekiel 17. Okay, so the idea here being... Um, Well, a couple ways to look at this. One, of course, the mustard seed apparently was not the smallest seed known in the world, but it would have been a smallest seed to them. And the mustard plant grew up to like 12, 15 feet tall. So it was a unique plant to those people. A tiny, tiny little seed, and it indeed did grow very tall. So it could represent, what he's saying here is the kingdom of God, the Christian church basically, is going to start really small and it's going to grow really big. And that would fit with what we know happens. You have these people, fishermen, like Jesus, the carpenter's son, born in a major, you know, all the improbable people, the small people, the poor people, the Gentiles. That, you know, everything is sort of against the world, the huge Roman Empire, the Jewish uh, teaching, the scribes, the Pharisees, all of that. So you have this contrast of the small band of followers, uneducated Jesus ultimately crucified and died. I mean, everything just goes sour, right? It's very improbable that that tiny little movement would become something so huge. But it did, right? And if you think about the whole history of even the Old Testament, Israel, pretty much confined to this area in Palestine, right? And that was pretty much it for a couple thousand years. And then Jesus comes, and within how many years? 40 years from Paul's preaching, really the civilized world knows about Christianity, and then within 100 years, 200 years, where, you know, it spreads. And now where we are today, 2,000 years later, I mean, every corner of the earth knows about Christianity, which started as a tiny seed. So I think the main imagery is that, is that it's referring to the kingdom of God is like that, and this is what we can see has happened. Uh, It could also mean, um, some people interpret this to mean, again, another representation of the Christian's growth. Okay, you start small and you grow. Okay, that's an imagery that's possible. It can also refer to uh, the changing nature of the church. Some people look at it to mean, um, well, let's back up. The, The imagery of of a tree and birds in the tree is an imagery taken from Ezekiel. And I actually want to flip there to a couple verses just because Jesus may have used this um, imagery knowing that they understood what this uh, tree and the birds nesting in the tree meant because it's mentioned a couple times. One is in Ezekiel chapter 31. Um, Get there. Verses 3 through 7. Uh, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high, and its top was among the clouds. So Assyria, this sort of other nation, right, this other kingdom, had all these things. The waters made it grow, the deep made it high. With its rivers, it continually extended all around its planting place and sent sent out its channels to all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field, and its bows became many, and its branches long because of many waters as it spread them out. 
All the birds of heaven nested in its boughs, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all the great nations lived under its shade. So um, the imagery of a kingdom growing with branches so the birds can come live in it and other people can rest under its shade, that imagery just commonly refers to a kingdom, a kingdom on earth. And it's also, I won't go there, but in Daniel chapter 4, it uses the same language to describe a kingdom, all right? So this may be saying that, um, that, and this is how MacArthur interprets this. He says, what this is saying here is similar to what we just said earlier, where the church, the Christians are going to spread, and Christians are going to be in the world, and they're going to have an impact on the world, such a good impact that even other people, they're non-Christians, will sort of be able to rest in this big tree that they have developed. Okay, that's the imagery that John MacArthur thinks this is referring to. Seems to make sense. So we percolate. We don't have a Christian nation like uh, uh, Drew mentioned today. There's no such thing. Sorry. I mean, in my opinion, there's no, there's no Christian nation, right? There just isn't. It, it's not. Could never. We don't have that. But we have Christians in the country that make it like it's a mustard tree and the birds can come in and rest in it, and it's a blessing to the non-believers because there's so many Christians around. That's how I think we're to interpret that. Tim, uh, Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Yeah. And he, wins, he, he who is wise wins souls. Which uh, hmm. the study that speaks of one who has such an influence yeah. on those around that they, they're drawn to their way of life. Not necessarily... Through conversion, which obviously yeah. is, is redemptive in any case, mm-hmm. but it comes from the righteous. They nourish, they provide shade, they bless those around them. Yep. Can you read that again? Proverbs 11, that's great. 11. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. Yeah, the fruit of the right. It's great. Great complimentary verse to this, I think, exactly what this is trying to say, too. Any other thoughts on the, the mustard seed? The, the, I hardly hesitate to mention it, because, but um, some people think that this could refer to sort of the changing nature of the church over time. Wherein, go ahead, Kay. Uh, I just have a question of these three parables. Um, I'm thinking back of what the similar passage in Matthew 5 of the lamp that you were saying. Yep. Let your light so shine that they may see your good works and yep. glorify your Father in heaven. So, and all that, you know, the economy of the seed growing, sometimes we, I know I'm very guilty to think the Lord is the author of my salvation, but then we, we walk in those good works, and we know that Ephesians being mm-hmm. very clear that there are even our good works he's prepared beforehand. So when you yep. think about, I'm just curious if this <laughs> can also apply, you know, especially when you think of that, those verses in 24 and 25 where Christ had his disciples to himself, Mm-hmm. Before he goes public, and he's talking about, um, you know, more will be given to you, and whatever whoever does not have, even when he has, shall be taken away. Even our growth, where the fruit, where the the shade, where the trees, you know, the birds, all of that, even as an individual, you know, I know I admire those believers, and I say, will I ever, will I ever be as mature as that person, you know, or mm-hmm. can I look how valuable they are when I've seen them, you know, you, you aspire. <coughs> And you think, how will you ever get there? But that's, I mean, that's so gracious, even 
look at the disciples that Peter's denying him here, mm-hmm. but then he dies for him there, you know. And so even when you think about that concept of it's not, I mean, I don't know if that's the right context to apply it, but even our good works mm-hmm. will add to that, you know. And so it's an encouragement to all of us that yep. we're, whatever he has us to do, small or great, start with that, you know, yep. as we grow. Because as the seed and the tree grows and, you know, and we just sometimes lose sight of that. We know he's the author of our salvation, but we kind of lose sight of how the growth happens. And it is, I think, through serving and the good works, and and we don't have to go from A to zero. You know, it's it's those steps, and we kind of miss that. We, we aspire to the big yeah. picture, and we miss all that in between. So that's really, that's been kind of a blessing. I don't know if that's a core. No, I think that's, that. that's really exactly close to what I was trying to say. What, you know, you have the image of the seed becoming a huge plant. And that seed is going to become a huge plant, right? No matter what, because God has decreed it to be so. That's the point. It goes from something really tiny to something really big, the smallest you can find. And so you could apply it to our own life to be um, as an encouragement to continue to work, but and also, though, assurance that no matter, like Peter, you know, he failed, we will fail over and over again, but Praise God, we will grow like a mustard plant will grow too. Yep. Any other thoughts on that? Well, we'll round this out just briefly, the last two verses. Uh, our hour is up, but I, I would like to just finish this, verse 33 and 34. Basically, this is a reminder to us and to his disciples of this really unique relationship he had with them. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And so Jesus knows what they're able to hear at a certain time. And he, he knows some parables, are, they'll understand. Some they won't. Some they need extra explanation about. Um, and he finishes there saying, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So it just reminds us of the fact that, like I prayed beforehand, you know, God's word is true and it's life to us. And it's sovereignly been given to us. Uh, we're not perfect. We may not understand it perfectly. Some of the teaching today may not be perfect. Okay? We just admit it because we're human. Just like when the disciples heard the parable, they may not have got it all the way. But they had Jesus to explain it to them afterwards, right? Um, so he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. The analogy for us today is what? We have the word. We may not completely understand it, but who privately helps us with it? The Holy Spirit. He said in John 16, I'm leaving, but when I leave, I'll send you a helper to teach you. So I see this as a direct analogy for that, that promise to them. You see the disciples hearing the word from Jesus. He's privately explaining it to them. We now have the word, and we have the Holy Spirit that has been sent to us to um, uniquely, privately talk to the believer. And I'll just read that, and then we'll close. John 16, verses 12 through 15. I have many more things to say to you. So this, he's, he's leaving. He has this time with his disciples in John 12 through 16, four chapters where he's really intimately with them. The next chapter, he has the cross. I have... And he says to them, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And that's like saying here in Mark, as far as they are able to hear it. Okay, so he's teaching them what they can handle. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will talk of, take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So I, I think that's the promise and the hope that we all have is the Holy Spirit will help us as we read his word and he'll bless it and we can go from a mustard seed into a big plant. Any other thoughts? And we'll close. Yes. That would be one way, to, in a way, yes, because God gives them the growth. That's right. Right. We, that's right. Yeah, Drew talked about the apologetics today. I'm, I'm a little of an apologetics skeptic, but uh, in, a, in a certain sense, you'd be careful with apologetics and relying on that logic of man to convince an unbeliever, because according to what we just learned in chapter four. It's it's God ultimately that does it, and we are to be good witnesses and effective witnesses and diligent and all all of that, so that the birds can rest in our nest. Um, well, I think that's a, I struggled with that as an early believer growing up, uh, but really understanding the gospel at a later college, but thinking that that it was up to me that it was me that cultivated the soil. Mm-hmm. And then I had to cultivate other soils, which is, you know, a responsibility we have to minister to others. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, as Paul says, in, I think First Corinthians ten, that I water Apollos, or I plant Apollos waters, but it's God who brings the increase. Mm-hmm. So there's work involved. Mm-hmm. But, to, but then the temptation is to think that there are those out there that have tended their soil. Yep. Where they're ready to hear the gospel. Yep. And so that there's a distinction there. And sin hasn't affected them to the point it has others. Right. And that really kind of corrupts the gospel. Mm-hmm. It makes it a man centered gospel. It puts the burden on the preacher and the yeah. and the evangelist. Right. To, and apologetics and you know, things like that where you've got to convince. Yep. But we strive and we work, we plant, we toil, we water. Mm-hmm. And I think what Tim said earlier is that pray. Prayer, an effective man can do much. And so if we understand how this works, God commands us to pray. We ought to could as much time diligently praying for people as we do trying to come up with a clever, different argument that, that, that might persuade them. Okay, great. Anything else? We'll see you next week. Thank you.